Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. I'd like to talk today about our work to define what it means to have successful regeneration, but also starting to look at examples of lack of regeneration uh, and what that means at the cellular and molecular level. So many of you may know that we've worked on this salamander for many years. It's called the axolotl, and um, it's able to regenerate very complex body parts, including the limb, the gills, the lower jaw, also the tail, where it, uh, within the tail, you even regenerate the spinal cord. And you can see this kind of remarkable uh, example of nature here in this uh, movie that was taken, where when you amputate the limb, a zone of uh, proliferative cells called the blastema emerges from the adult tissue, which then undergoes growth and patterning to replace only the part of the limb that's missing. And um, regeneration is a fascinating topic. It's been worked on since the late 1700s, and there's a very deep classical history uh, of experiments that tell us the logic of how um, the system works at a tissue level. Um, the animal, these animals have a really large genome, so it was hard to de- uh, assemble its genome and use it until very recently. But with modern methods of, of, uh, of long read sequencing, we were able to assemble the genome. And now we can really look at the genomic level at regeneration. An interesting advantage of having a large genome is that these cells have really large, uh, these animals have really large cells. And we've been able to use that advantage to uh, live image the process of regeneration in animals, which you'll see. We're really proud and happy that by now, because of CRISPR and next generation sequencing, we have the full molecular genetic toolkit in this uh, organism, including being able to tag proteins by uh, CRISPR-mediated precise knock-in into the genome. And as I mentioned, live imaging is an important component of our toolkit. Now, here's a a static time lapse of the uh, process of regeneration. And here's what an example of a regenerating limb looks like in um, an actual dissecting microscope. We use uh, larval animals that are small so that we can fit the whole limb under the uh, microscope and watch the process occur. So here you can see the bones. This is the humerus, radius, and ulnar. And this is this blastema of progenitor cells. And in this longitudinal section, you can uh, see that there are mesenchymal cells here, uh, and then it's co- uh, covered with an epidermis. And this ep- uh, this interface between the epidermis and the mesenchymal cells is absolutely essential for the process of regeneration to proceed. So the classical uh, uh, questions for this field is, how does the blastema form from the mature tissue? From which cells? How is that triggered by amputation? And of course, how is appropriate uh, growth controlled? And then as I, of course, uh, one of the biggie questions is what is different in animals that don't um, regenerate? So I wanted to take you through some of the really classic uh, experiments that tell us about the logic of how regeneration occurs. And this is one really uh, fascinating one uh, where the limb was amputated here at the wrist And then uh, these animals can really uh, take a lot of tissue grafts. So this limb was sutured back into the um, body and made some kind of connection to the body. And then the limb was amputated through the upper arm, generating the normal uh, stump 
tissue, but also an inverse-oriented uh, um, stump tissue. And interestingly, both um, limbs regenerated uh, the lower part of the humerus, the lower arm, and the hand. And so from these kind of experiments, it was concluded that cells at the amputation plane, in essence, have an identity. They know whether they're upper arm, lower arm, or hand. And then the act of amputation somehow causes some of the cells that make the blastema to then convert into lower arm and hand cells. And it's always in this uh, what we call proximal to distal re uh, uh, direction that we get uh, regeneration. And so that's called the rule of distal transformation. Now, the, uh, you know, the question was whether all cells in the limb have this information or whether there are certain key cell types that have this memory and organize the regeneration process. So to figure out which cells in the limb have this um, positional identity, we made transgenic animals that um, labeled different tissue types in the limb and then used a, another type of grafting experiment to ask uh, whether cells have this positional identity or not. So we start with an upper limb stump um, after amputation, but instead of just letting it regenerate, <clears throat> we make a wrist blastema, a hand blastema from a transgenic animal that expresses GFP in muscle cells. We then transplanted this um, hand blastema onto an upper arm stump and allowed the regeneration process to occur. And from previous experiments from many researchers, we know <clears throat> that this chimeric, let's say, um, graft, uh, grafted uh, sample regenerates a normally patterned limb. And so you can see that here. And interestingly, the transgenic cells that came from the hand blastema contribute to muscle in the lower arm and the upper arm. So this goes against this rule of distal transformation. So we conclude from this that the muscle progenitor cells that are in the blastema do not have any kind of positional identity. Now we can contrast that with an animal in which what we call connective tissue cells, and for, for the purposes of this experiment, you can think of it as the fibroblasts, like the dermal fibroblasts uh, inside the tissue are labeled, uh, they express GFP. So we make this wrist um, blastema transplant onto an upper arm stump. We allow that to regenerate. And now in this case, these uh, fibroblastic cells cause uh, regeneration of hand elements, but not lower arm and hand. And so it's clear that these fibroblasts are the cells that have this uh, memory of what part of their limb they're from and that obey this rule of distal transformation. You always only make cells that are more distal than your original identity. And this is just a control where an upper arm uh, uh, blastema from the connective tissues transplanted onto an upper arm stump, and then you get upper arm, lower arm, and hand. So it became clear that understanding how these fibroblastic cells, so the connective tissue cells, undergo regeneration is probably the key cell type to study uh, in this process. So Josh Curry, a postdoc in the lab, uh, who now has his own lab at Wake Forest University, set out to perform live imaging of these connective tissue cells during regeneration. So he made a transgenic um, axolotl uh, a rainbow transgenic axolotl in which through Cree-mediated recombination, you can induce uh, cells to uh, express different combinations of fluorescent proteins. And then he uh, drove Cree uh, in cells that would make these connective tissues. Now, connective tissues involve, uh, include 
the fibroblasts, pericytes, periskeleton, cartilage, bone, ligaments, and tendons. And these are all the cells that you see labeled here. He then um, amputated a digit tip, which is small enough in a small animal that we could put this, di uh, this live digit under the confocal microscope and see all the cells that were regenerating the new digit tip. And so you're, now you're going to see the movie of this process. And what you'll notice is that cells will migrate to the tip here. And then this zone of cartilage here will start growing back uh, the missing part of cartilage. Okay, so Josh spent a long time looking at these uh, movies and um, he, he, uh, he could make tracks like this and conclude quite a bit about uh, what these cells were doing. I mean, one of the questions was, you know, does a cell give rise to multiple different uh, connective tissue cell types? And the answer is yes. And so if you see in this color code here, this is a periskeletal cell that was around the digit tip cartilage that migrated across the amputation plane, went to the tip of the regenerate, and then divided during that time. And its daughters formed uh, periskeleton, but also re the regenerating cartilage. You can see that a dermal cell here marked in orange did a very similar thing. It crossed the, it migrated across the amputation plane very early, went to the tip of the regenerate, and its daughters formed periskeleton and cartilage. Interestingly, when dermal cells cross the amputation plane later, they could form cartilage along the side of the cartilage, but then you start to see that their descendants also form the dermal cells. And then very important and interesting is that in gray, you see here the what happened with the uh, chondrocytes that were in the cartilage itself. And in fact, these cells divided, they proliferated, but because they're not migratory and don't cross the amputation plane, they actually don't contribute to the newly regenerating part of the digit tip. So for many years, people in the in the field were in some sense fooled by these chondrocytes because they saw them proliferating in histological sections. So they assumed that the cartilage was regenerating the cartilage, uh, but in fact, they're not uh, they're they're not re um, growing the new um, tissue. So um, this just shows you some of the lineage trees where you see cells from the dermis, for example, generating daughters that are different freight from their origin. And from these kind of movies, we could con uh, conclude that most fibroblasts within 250 to 500 microns behind the amputation plane migrate across the amputation plane to found this blastema and that the daughter cells contribute to more than one subtype of connective um, tissue. This was very important information for us be for being able to do molecular profiling because previous to that, people were not sure whether the blastema was founded from a small subpopulation of cells in the mature tissue, like subpopulation of fibroblasts, for example, and then amplified a lot to make the blastema, which would make actually understanding the transition harder because we would have to be able to select this very uh, special subpopulation. But it really seems that uh, essentially all or most of the fibroblasts at the amputation plane um, turn into blastema cells to regenerate the tissue. So that gave us the confidence to apply single cell sequencing to analyze the transition of a mature fibroblast into a blastema cell. So we used another Crelox uh, reporter, which expressed the cherry gene irreversibly in um, fibroblast cells. 
and we performed a regeneration time course, fact sorting out these cherry positive cells uh, from the tissues and then performing single cell sequencing. Now these time points, three days, five days, eight days, 11 days, seems like they're pretty far apart, but the axolotl has this huge genome. And so in fact, it's cell cycle is super long. It's about 90 hours, 96 hours. And uh, so in essence, this time course is sub single cell cycle. And um, we did this work long ago enough that this was fluidine uh, sequence cells. So we don't have thousands of cells in this particular data set. Um, but it was enough to show us that marked in red here are the cells coming from the mature limb. They show a quite transcriptionally heterogeneous profile. Uh, then as they um, enter into the blastema, um, they become transcriptionally more and more similar to each other. So they lose their differences. So they're presumably different at the beginning because there are many, many different niches in the mature uh, tissue. But then as they go into the blastema, they become transcriptionally pretty similar. Now we could look at the transcriptional um, uh, profile of these cells. And so you can see here, these are the cells that were in the mature tissue, the early time points, the later time points. And so you can see certain waves of transcription of certain types of genes. And when we do geoterm analysis, uh, the mature cells, of course, are expressing a lot of ECM type genes like collagens. But then at early time points after amputation, the cells um, express a transcriptional signature of an inflammatory response, and then proteins that actually disassemble the ECM. Then we can see the signs of proliferation. And then as cells differentiate again, they start reorganizing their ECM. Now, these blastema cells have to regenerate the entire limb with full pattern. And so an important question in our field is to what extent the regeneration process is basically reverting back to an embryonic program and replaying this embryonic program. And we wanted to address this with the single cell sequencing. And so we also profiled uh, limb bud, embryonic limb bud cells of the axolotl and then compared their transcriptional profile with the blastema cells. And so we performed an analysis called quadratic programming, where we identified the gene set that's characteristic for the uninjured fibroblasts, gene specific for the late limb bud, gene specific for the five-day blastema, and gene specific for the 11-day blastema. And then we asked uh, for each cell, what fraction of these programs um, did that cell express? And so of course, then the mature cells here marked in red express the uninjured uh, program. But then as the cells go through the regeneration time course, they go through a unique state. But by 11 days post-amputation, the blastema cells are very similar to an embryonic or, or larval uh, limb bud cell. So for us, this was the first global expression, uh, uh, expression profiling experiment that could, in a way, show us that these fibroblasts are going through a de-differentiation process, losing their mature features, and then gaining this embryonic gene transcriptional program. Now, um, and we can associate certain gene sets um, in relation to all of these uh, 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 stages, and we're very interested in, in what these genes do during these different transitions. Now, a feature of um, embryonic type limb progenitors is that they're multipotent for the connective tissue um, lineage. So that means that a single cell, so Cliff Taven's lab and uh, Miguel Torres's lab that sh showed that if you label a single progenitor cell in the uh, mouse or chicken limb bud, 
then it proliferates and its descendants form uh, tendons, cartilage, bone, uh, ligaments, uh, fibroblasts. Uh, and so the question was whether the blastema cells also do this. And Josh's movies indicated that they do. But we could use the single cell uh, sequencing data set to generate trajectories that did indeed predict that we have a progenitor cell whose descendants uh, could uh, likely uh, generate cartilage, bone, and non-skeletal soft connective tissue cells. We confirmed this again using the brainbow animal, but in kind of long-term fate mo map mode, where um, we could induce uh, the brainbow recombinations before regeneration, and we found that these blue cells were present very, at very low frequency in the adult tissue. So that gave us confidence that when we saw blue cells in the regenerate, they had derived from a single cell at the amputation plane. So then when we look at what the blue cells contribute to in the regenerate, you can see from this um, legend here that in, indeed they are contributing to skeletons, periskeleton, loose connective tissues and tendons. So then uh, confirming uh, Josh's filming data that uh, when a cell goes into the blastema, a connective tissue cell goes into the blastema, uh, um, then it generates a cell that's multipotent for the connective tissue lineage. So just to kind of summarize the results, these connective tissue cells, um, these fibroblastic connective tissue cells, are present uh, here in the limb marked in green, the dermal fibroblasts, interstitial fibroblasts, cells surrounding the um, bone, um, the periosteum, let's say. And then when you amputate the limb, first the epidermis crawls over the end of the limb. And then um, actually we see a callus forming at the end of the bone, like in other organisms. Um, and this callus does contribute a little bit to regeneration of the bone, but only to extending the existing humerus. Then we see the emergence of these uh, blastema cells um, from these uh, fibroblasts. They go to the tip of the blastema and ultimately they regenerate not only themselves, but uh, the bone, the ligaments, the cartilage uh, in the regenerating tissue. So we think that the hallmarks of regenerative fibroblasts are um, that they de-differentiate to make a multipotent skeletal progenitor cell, that upper leg skin fibroblasts contribute to the regenerated foot. So what about non-regenerative um, animals? So um, in order to address that question, uh, we, what we wanted to know is whether fibroblasts in the non-regenerative animals have the same capabilities as in axolotl and something else is blocking them from doing this regeneration or whether there's something intrinsically wrong with the fibroblast in a non-regenerative animal. And so here we compared um, uh, two animals, the axolotl with the frog, which undergoes what we call abortive regeneration. So when you amputate the leg of a post-metamorphic frog, actually it undergoes wound healing. It forms even what looks like a blastema, but then it just regenerates a spike of cartilage. It's not patterned and there's no muscle in the regenerate. So we call this abortive regeneration. And uh, again, we applied lineage tracing and single cell sequencing to analyze this situation and compare it to the axolotl. And again, this was a collaboration with Barbara Twightline's lab and Toby Gerber, as was the original axolotl work. So here's the single cell um, sequencing data of a time course of the uh, frog. Uh, and so you can see in this UMAP uh, representation um, of the cells, 
uh, that you, they cluster together, the time points cluster together, but they kind of go in a sequence here uh, until you get a divergence here at the late time points. Uh, but interestingly, there was a kind of second mini time course going on here from zero days to the late time points, suggesting that there was some cell type that uh, was remaining separate. And I should say that this is just taking the subset of connective tissue cells that were in the limb, although we sequenced the entire limb. So um, when we annotate the cells, indeed this bulk uh, area of the UMAP seems to be uh, the interstitial fibroblasts and presumably their descendants uh, that go along a kind of um, time course after amputation. And at the end, some of the cells uh, in the late time points are contributing to cartilage and spike fibroblasts. And then this mini time course here seems to be uh, dermal fibroblasts and presumably their descendants that are forming um, other dermal fibroblasts. And this we did not see in the axolotl data. So we wanted to confirm the types of um, observations that we were inferring from the single cell sequencing data. So to do that, we transplanted different tissue pieces from a, um, a transgenic uh, frog expressing venous into the limb and then amputated and watched how these uh, labeled cells integrated into the regenerating tissue. And the pictures you'll see are this uh, viewpoint. So when we transplant muscle, in which the major cells that are going into the blastema are these interstitial fibroblasts, um, you can see we get uh, plenty of cells uh, here, and some of them remain as fibroblasts, but some of them are forming SOX9-positive cartilage. So they seem to have some flexibility to form cartilage. When we uh, transplant a piece of tendon, uh, we see uh, lots of cells forming SOX9-positive um, cartilage cells. So these tendon-derived cells seem to be um, quite flexible. And in contrast, when we transplant a piece of skin, and these would be uh, dermal fibroblasts, they go into the blastema, but we don't see them actually uh, contributing very much at all to the SOX9-positive cartilage cells which would be consistent with that single cell data that the dermal cells, the dermal fibroblasts were forming their own little mini um, time course. So we could um, count actually the percentage of cells going into the SOX9 positive cartilage, and then also back calculate um, knowing what percentage of, of um, the representation of each tissue like muscle, tendon, skin, at the uh, dermis, at the amputation plane, then we could calculate that um, the contribution of uh, each uh, type of fibroblast into the regenerating cartilage of the frog. And so 86% of this regenerating cartilage rod comes from interstitial fibroblasts. Then this proportion comes from the tendon, and then 3.8 comes from um, the dermal cells. Now, this question of whether these frog fibroblasts um, become like an embryonic limb bud progenitor again. So um, this for us was a very important criteria of, uh, or a way of analyzing what was going on. And so I'm going to take you through this data starting from the axolotl data. So um, this is a single cell sequencing of the axolotl data. And here on the right, you see um, the embryonic limb bud cells. And again, this is this quadratic programming method where we um, identified um, limb bud-specific genes and mature fibroblast-specific genes. 
and asked what proportion of each program is each cell uh, expressing. And so you can see here, of course, the cells deriving from the axolotl limb bud express a, a high proportion of the limb bud gene um, set. And then when we look at uh, the fibroblasts that are going into the blastema during axolotl regeneration, uh, we go from a mature phenotype and then a large fraction of the cells express a, a high proportion of these embryonic limb bud type um, genes. Now let's look at the frog data. Again, so these are now the frog limb bud cells expressing the frog limb bud gene set. But now when we look at the uh, time course after amputation of the frog cells, we see that they, they do lose their uh, mature expression to some extent, but they never express a very high proportion of the limb bud uh, genes. Of course, some are, but uh, they, there's not a very strong expression of the limb bud gene set. So really the question uh, is, is that because um, the cells themselves are incapable of turning on this embryonic limb bud program, or there's something missing in their environment, or even there's something negative in their environment that's preventing these frog cells from turning on this limb bud program. So to try and distinguish between these uh, possibilities, we decided to take a heterochronic transplantation approach. So we used a transgenic xenopus um, animal uh, expressing TD tomato. We made blastema cells, and then we wanted to transplant them into the best possible environment to get them to form limb bud-like cells. And of course, that's the limb bud itself. And then we wanted to ask whether these cells would contribute to the skeleton and whether they would contribute to the foot. Now, we thought that there's a few very important um, validating uh, positive controls for such work. One is to transplant limb bud cells into the limb bud, uh, and there we should expect uh, to see cells in the foot skeleton um, so that, you know, we know we can transplant it uh, into the right place. And then the second positive control was to take axolotl blastema cells and transplant them into the axolotl limb bud. And there we should also see foot skeleton, otherwise our, our assay is not valid. So here's uh, some images from the limb bud to limb bud transplantation control. Uh, you can see this is the limb that grew out from that limb bud, and these white areas are the uh, engrafted cells after the transplantation. And when we uh, cross-section um, this tissue in the foot, uh, we can see that a number of the uh, tomato-expressing cells are also expressing SOX9 in the cartilage. And then in the toe, we see the same thing. So that means we're able to perform this transplantation in a meaningful way. So now let me show you the actual transplantation of the post-metamorphic frog blastema cells transplanted into the frog limb bud. Uh, you see the limb here and uh, the engrafted uh, cells. Uh, but now when we uh, section this tissue and look at the TD tomato positive cells, we did not see cells in the uh, developing cartilage. They seem to remain outside as kind of uh, fibroblastic-like uh, cells. So this summarizes um, the data here. Uh, when we transplant xenop uh, axolotl limb bud to limb bud, we see SOX9 positive cartilage cells in the foot. When we transplant axolotl um, blastema into the limb bud, we see SOX9 positive cartilage cells in the foot. And when we transplant the fibroblasts directly from the mature axolotl limb into the axolotl limb bud, they can uh, contribute to 
the SOX9 positive cartilage cells in the foot. Now, in contrast, when we have the limb bud, uh, the uh, frog bud, limb bud to limb bud, we uh, see the SOX9 positive cartilage cells in the foot, which is good. But then when we transplant blastema into limb bud, we don't see SOX9 positive cartilage cells in the foot. Now, concern was whether the blastema cells that we isolated were unhealthy. But interestingly, when we transplant the frog blastema cells back into their own, into the blastema, we see lots of SOX9 positive cartilage cells being formed from those blastema cells because, of course, that, that frog abortive regenerate has cartilage in it. So uh, we wanted to understand this uh, further. So on a molecular level, and so we um, took the uh, fro uh, blastema cells from a venous-expressing xenopus transplanted it into a uh, limb bud of a uh, xenopus that was expressing TD tomato, gave the cells three days to adjust to their environment, and then we dissociated in single-cell sequence this limb bud. And uh, you can see here, marked in green are the cells that are the donor, um, uh, the acceptor limb bud cells, so the host. And then in light blue are the donor blastema cells uh, without transplantation, and in dark blue are the uh, transplanted blastema cells uh, after transplantation when they're together with these um, uh, limb bud cells. And so you can see that these transplanted blastema cells seem to be um, blind to their environment. They, they really don't seem to change their transcriptional profile towards a limb bud-like state. Confirming our, our, our quadratic analysis that the xenopus cells do not acquire a limb bud-like um, expression profile. And this is just another way to represent the data. Here's uh, the sets of genes that characterize the um, host limb bud cells, the donor blastema cells prior to transplantation, and then the transplanted um, blastema cells. So it really seems that the, um, that the fibroblasts in the adult frog are intrinsically different than, um, than axolotl cells and are unable to read the signals or somehow de-differentiate into an embryonic-like cell. And so, you know, to look at this paradox that while the blastema cells cannot contribute to um, cartilage in the embryonic context, but do form cartilage in this adult kind of abortive regenerative context, we looked at a spectrum of markers um, that are associated with cartilage development and formation. And then we asked, okay, how many of these uh, factors and to what extent these cells um, express these factors? And so you can just see here uh, very simply in, in this um, assessment of cartilage score that in the axolotl, the limb bud cells and the blastema cells have a very similar distribution along the cartilage score. Whereas in contrast, when you uh, look at um, the frog, the frog limb bud cells have a very different distribution along the cartilage score um, axis compared to the adult cells. And in some ways, it's easier to see the data like this, where in the X level, you see the profile of, um, of the embryonic and the um, adult cells are very, uh, blastema cells are very similar according to the cartilage score. Whereas in the frog, um, the, uh, the adult and the embryonic cells uh, behave uh, very differently. 
So um, what this means is that the post, we think that the post-metamorphic frog fibroblast might be intrinsically incapable of de-differentiating into a multipotent limb skeletal progenitor cell that can um, regenerate an entire um, uh, structure like uh, a patterned um, limb. Um, the cartilage differentiation program appears to differ in frog limb buds compared to the post-metamorphic spike. I didn't show you this data, but we also showed that the positional identity gene expression um, in the adult uh, blastema cells is somehow deranged and very lowly expressed. And we think this is also one component as to why these cells do not uh, are not able to form a patterned um, limb. And so we're very much interested in understanding the factors underlying the resistance of adult fibroblasts um, to reprogramming. So in the last um, few minutes um, of the talk, I wanted to just talk about uh, one other way that we're trying to now understand species differences uh, in regeneration at the protein level. So this is the work of Takuji Sergiura. And we have known for many years that this wound epidermis is absolutely essential uh, for the ability of this regenerated structure to grow. Now, Takuji uh, performed a really amazing uh, functional uh, expression cloning approach to identify a new factor that's uh, a previously unknown factor that's expressed in the wound epidermis and required for this growth process. What he had done is to uh, uh, make a cDNA library from regenerating axolotl tissue, transfect it into 293 cells, allow these cells to express harvest the culture supernatant, then assay it on a uh, salamander cell line, uh, actually differentiated myotubes, uh, where he could induce um, DNA synthesis. And after actually uh, sib-selecting these clones down to single clones, he identified uh, MLP, meristillated alanine-rich C kinase substrate-like protein, as, um, as a, as a uh, protein, as the protein responsible for this activity. And what's, uh, was really amazing for us is that this protein was, uh, typically thought of as an intracellular protein in mammals. There's an ortholog in mammals and it has no secretion signal sequence. So we're really rather mystified. But in essence, we really could show looking at the cell lysate versus the culture media that 293 cells, uh, transfected with the axolotl MLP is really found in the culture media. We showed this is not due to cell death, whereas the human MLP is not found in the culture media. We purified this protein and showed it's uh, necessary for the activity. And just to summarize that results, we could inject this purified protein into the adult axolotl tissue, and that was sufficient to induce multiple cell types to enter S phase. Uh, we could block the activity of MLP in the axolotl, and then we uh, blocked regeneration from starting. And then under those conditions, we could inject actually the protein into the inhibited animals and restore the growth of this tissue. And by doing immunofluorescence, we found that this MLP is expressed in this wound epidermis. And in the mature epidermis, it's there, but it seems to be in the cytoplasm, whereas in the wound epidermis, it seems to be associated with the plasma membrane. So Takuchi's been studying actually how does this um, uh, protein escape cells in the axolotl? And then, of course, with the perspective of why doesn't the human uh, protein get out of cells? Okay, so... 
Our hypothesis is that maybe the membrane association of this axolotl MLP that we see in the wound epidermis is related to its secretion because we know it's not secreted by a canonical Golgi-mediated me uh, mechanism. We've done the experiments for that. And the previous work on mammalian MLP showed that it is phosphorylated and when it's phosphorylated, it's released into the cytoplasm, whereas when it's non-phosphorylated, it's associated with the plasma membrane. So Takuchi asked a simple question of whether uh, if he found two conserved serines that are present in the human and the axolotl MLP, and then he mutated them either into um, alanines or aspartates uh, to either mimic the non-phosphorylated form or the phosphorylated form. He then transfected this as a GFP fusion protein into 293 cells and then quantified the amount of GFP fusion protein in the cell culture supernatant. So you can see here that the non-phosphorylated mimic, in fact, looks like it's on cell membranes, whereas the phosphomimic looks like it's in um, the cytoplasmic uh, area. And then when he measured the amount of GFP fusion protein in the culture media outside the cells, indeed the non-phosphomimic uh, is readily secreted out of cells, whereas the phosphorylated mimic form is not released uh, from cells practically at all. It's almost the same as just transfecting um, GFP into cells. Um, and interestingly, when he transfected this kind of um, non-phosphorylated mimic form, he saw a lot of these kind of GFP vesicular-like uh, structures. So we asked the question, are these uh, extracellular vesicles the carrier of MLP? So uh, Takuji made an extracellular vesicle prep from these transfected cells, and, and indeed he could isolate vesicles that have typical exosome markers. And, and in fact, the uh, MLP-GFP fusion protein was heavily associated with this extracellular vesicle prep. So next he wanted to know whether this um, MLP associated with the extracellular vesicles is active. So he transfected again the 293 cells and either harvested just the culture media as before or made the extracellular vesicle prep and then assayed it on his original myotube uh, cell cycle entry assay. And there we also had a very nice comparative control because we knew that actually BMPs can also induce a response in these myotubes. So, and we know that BMPs are secreted through a normal canonical uh, secretion process. So Takuji made the same um, transfection and media versus extracellular vesicle prep um, from the BMP trans, uh, plasmid transfected cells. And so you can see here that in the MLP transfected cells, he can recover activity from the uh, culture media, but also from the purified extracellular vesicles. And interestingly, when he does the same experiment with BMPs, he gets the activity from the culture media, but not from the extracellular vesicles. So we really do believe that this axolotl MLP associated extracellular vesicles are uh, really responsible for signaling to uh, responding cells. So our model then is that in the animal, the MLP is sitting in the cytoplasm in the mature epidermis. Then when you amputate the limb, there must be some change in the kinase spectrum or activities in the wound epidermis that cause MLP to be dephosphorylated and then released uh, to stimulate underlying cells to start dividing. 
So Takuji uh, wanted to understand which kinases might regulate X-level MLP phosphorylation. He did a small screen um, that identified potentially PKC-alpha and ROC1 or ROC2 uh, as potential kinases that regulate MLP. I'm not going to go into the details of that. But to confirm whether those kinases might indeed be potential uh, kinases for MLP, he co-transfected into the 293 cells the axonal MLP fusion protein with the PKC or ROC isoform at different ratios to see how this might affect the secretion of the MLP. So here's the data. It's actually very beautiful. When he co-transfects with PKC-alpha, he can see a reduction in the secretion of MLP. And if he does that with PKC-iota, the same type of experiment, he sees no change in the secretion of XLL MLP. Similarly, for the rocks, when he co-transfects the cells with ROC2, he can reduce the amount of MLP secretion, whereas when he uh, co-transfects with ROC1, he sees no uh, change in the secretability of the axolotl MLP. And interestingly, these two serine sites that uh, Takuji had mutated are ve have very good consensus sequence sites for PKC-alpha and ROC2, which have a very similar um, phosphorylation consensus sequence. So then he also asked, okay, now I have this mutant that mimics the non-phosphorylatable, uh, the non-phosphorylated form, and it would not be a target for these kinases. So when he um, co-transfects now the mutant with these two kinases, he does not see a reduction um, in the secretion of the AA mutant with the kinases. So although this is not ev yet evidence that, the, um, that these two serine sites are the direct target of PKC-alpha or ROC2, it's very suggestive that this um, could be the case. So just one last thing. Now, these serines are conserved between human and axolotl, but I told you that the human is not secreted, but the axolotl is. So we were wondering, there must be some other part of the protein that's also involved in the secretion process. And if you look at the alignment between axolotl and human MLP, it's, there's some reasonable conservation in the N-terminal half, but the C-terminal half is very poorly conserved between these two animals. So the C-terminal half is only 14% uh, uh, conserved between human and axolotl. So Takuji then asked, is there something about the C-terminus um, that's important for secretion? And he did this by making chimeric axolotl human um, uh, chimeric molecules. So either the full-length axolotl or the axolotl linked to the human C-terminus or the full-length human or the human N-terminus linked to the axolotl C-terminus. Uh, and then he had the N-terminus alone of the two proteins. And so you can see the secretion data here. Here's the axolotl full-length protein. Here's the human full-length protein. And interestingly, when you hook the axolotl N-terminus to the human C-terminus, you reduce the secretion of the axolotl protein. But when you hook the human N-terminus to the axolotl C-terminus, you have almost normal wild-type levels of secretion. And then, of course, there's the N-terminus alone, which is very important. And interestingly, the N-terminus alone of both the axolotl and the human are both released extracellularly, almost to similar amounts. So, in fact, the human protein has some capability of getting out, but the C-terminus seems to provide a very strong inhibition of uh, the secretability of um, the N-terminus. 
But this is all we know for now. I think there's a lot of interesting things to uh, to investigate with respect to um, the species-specific activity of this MLP. Of course, we also want to know in the XL, does amputation regulation of PKC-alpha and ROC2 control MLP activity in vivo during axolotl regeneration in the wound epidermis? And of course, we're interested in further understanding the mechanism and evolution of this MLPC terminus as a way that might be controlling a regeneration signal. So I want to thank everybody in the lab, uh, the work of uh, Prayag, uh, who uh, did the single cell sequencing work with Wouter in the, uh, for the um, axolotl, the frog work done by Tsiang Yuka, and uh, Sergey was a bioinformatician who was extremely important in all these efforts, and Takuji, who did the work on MLP. We've had uh, amazing collaborators for many of these projects uh, regarding the genome, single cell sequencing, and uh, we've had uh, tremendous support from our funders. Thank you very much. All right, that, that was fantastic, uh, Ellie. Thanks so much for that wonderful talk. I'll go ahead and start with the questions. Uh, so I think there's one from Sang Moon Lee. Uh, what happens if tadpole limb bud is transplanted to amputated limb of post-metamorphic frogs? Ah, yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting experiment, and it's been done. And the tadpole uh, limb bud can regenerate um, up to a certain stage. And uh, Sue Bryant's lab uh, transplanted that onto a post-metamorphic frog stump, and that can still regenerate. So that is additional evidence that the adult environment itself is not necessarily um, repressive for regeneration. Yes, it's a very important experiment. Okay, great. And then uh, Mafalda Loretti asks, you know, well, first off, wants to thank you for this fantastic talk. It was a great deal of data and was wondering if you have tried to transplant embryonic blastema cells to adult tissues in the xenopus. Actually, Jonathan Slack's lab, um, they actually... Um, they tried to rescue regeneration in the adult by transplantation of embryonic limb uh, cells. And they had to do a bit of engineering. So they had to transfect the cells with an activated beta-catenin and co-transfect it with sonic hedgehog and FGF and beta-thymosin. And when they did that and then uh, and then put all these, these cells uh, with all that stuff on the end of an amputated uh, frog limb, they did actually get multiple outgrowths uh, like, like digits that looks like a regenerated uh, limb. It was not perfect, but very quite, not, uh, quite nice. And I think that's really quite significant um, that they were able to do that. That's a deaf cell paper that was a few years ago. You should invite Gufa Lin. He's the guy who did it. He's now in China. <laughs> well, Ellie, let me, let me ask you this question. It's maybe sort of related, but just flipped around a little bit. My understanding is axolotl can undergo metamorphosis if given the right chemical conditions. Uh, can you do similar studies and have similar studies been done rather with the tadpole, but just with the axolotl and uh, going from a neotenic state to a post-metamorphic state? Um, yeah, actually, you know, we, we, we looked at post-metamorphic um, axolotls and the thing is they regenerate pretty well. I mean, occasionally you get kind of, um, uh, you know, digit, um, digit abnormalities and things like that, but you're basically getting a regenerated limb, even post-metamorphically in axolotl. Okay. That, that's great. Cause I, I was under the impression, but I was not sure. Uh, I can't remember whether there was a person from UC Irvine who does some of these axolotls, you probably know. And I just seem to recall that the, there is something that they do regenerate, but not always perfectly. So I didn't know if there was some differences 
between being a neotenic or post uh, metamorphic. Yeah. So you're you're saying that the, it, it's pretty similar at the end of the day. Yeah, it looks pretty good. I mean, and also what hasn't been quite worked out yet is oftentimes you're doing these regeneration experiments for metamorphosis in quite large animals. And to what extent some of the regeneration defects are due to size or to the metamorphosis. So I, we have a lot of work to do to understand these uh, defects. But, but you know, it would be like you would get three fingers instead of four, but you still would get the elbow, the lower arm, and yeah. Uh, which, if any of these cell types contribute to regenerating the dis. And distal amputated nerves. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you cut the limb, uh, the axons are cut, but the uh, cells survive. And so the axons just start growing back out again. And then the Schwann cells that are wrapped around the nerve, they also, uh, you know, start proliferating again and, uh, they migrate into the blastema and then they rewrap around the, the, uh, the growing nerve. So that's how the nerve regeneration happens. Okay, and and I don't know a variation of maybe it's potentially some same question within okay. the regenerating limb. You see restoration of all cell types, including functional nerve fibers. Yes, it seems to be. I mean, uh, there hasn't been a huge amount of work to test the functionality of the nerves. That's actually something we're very interested in getting into uh, now. Uh, but so far, it, it, according to the patterns and things, it looks like the regeneration of the nervous system is really quite good. All right, great. And then uh, Tony Hunter has a question for you. Yeah. <laughs> is I knew, all- Tony, you wouldn't answer the most, you know, whatever, difficult or interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the same thing of Tony, too. Uh, is MLP inside the exosomes or on the outside? And what is known about the MLP receptor and its signaling pathway? Yes, yes, yes totally. So I, I left out this slide, which I normally put in, Tony, <laughs> because I was running out of time. But um, yeah, so exosomes, the classical exosomes that people, other people are studying, uh, typically should have the same topology as the cell, right? But then if you're thinking about our MLP, uh, then maybe the exosome should have the opposite topology as the cell. And so we're trying to do EM in collaboration with some people to understand actually how the uh, exosome that carry MLP might be generated uh, and whether, you know, this, this MLP in theory should be on the outside of the vesicle, right? Otherwise, how could it signal to the responding cell? Or is it actually generating a vesicle and something else on the vesicle is actually the thing that stimulates the cell, Right. These are all very important and interesting questions. So I can tell you what I know, <laughs> which is that uh, we have seen in EM images, uh, vesicles that look like they're coming out of the cell and they look like MLP might be on the outside of these uh, vesicles, but we're still very much uh, looking into it. The other thing is, um, as far as we know, this it's really the MLP that's stimulating um, the cells but of course, we can never completely exclude that there's some other contaminating protein. But when Takuji purified the axolotl his MLP, ran a silver stain gel, it did look like a single band. It wasn't like a dirty, you know, like many, many proteins like we might expect in an exosome. Uh, and then when we added, um, when we added uh, blocking antibodies to that preparation, it did block the response. Um, so uh, to uh, of the cells um, uh, to the to the to the cells. So at the moment we are operating on the uh, on the hypothesis that MLP is directly 
engaging with the receiving cells and that there is a receptor. So we've been working on the receptor aspect. Uh, we had tried to see whether this um, actually stimulates a calcium increase in calcium response in the receiving cells as a way to functionally uh, clone the receptor, but there does not seem to be an increase in, in calcium in the receiving cells as far as we can tell. And so now we are thinking about a kind of cross-linking mass spec approach because now with CRISPR and stuff, you can screen through all the candidates. And it just has taken us a while first to, this protein has very special properties in terms of hydrophobicity and this, that, and the other to find actually a suitable buffer. And then also the original experiments were done on newt cells and we don't want to do the proteomics on newt cells. And so we had to adapt the whole assay to axolotl cells uh, so and, and get the cell cycle response to this, that, and the other. So we're slowly on our way to uh, to uh, work on the receptor, which is for me, the, one of the most exciting things. And I'm like, oh, Takuji, come on, you know? And so, but these are all extremely good questions. Do you have insight into why the regenerated elements maintain appropriate proportions? Or more broadly, why do elements stop growing? Are there similar constraining pathways to development? Yes, yes, no, that's a super interesting question. Uh, We're looking into that now because actually even more fascinating, well, yeah, and there's two aspects of that question. One is, you know, when you have this developmental stage, you know, how does it then decide when to start forming cartilage and, and this, that, and the other? And I can say that, you know, you can induce regeneration in like small axolotls that are two centimeters long and giant ones that are 20 centimeters big, and you get a bigger blastema in the big animals. So then how do you get scaling of all the developmental programs in, in these small versus big animals? Then there's a second phase where actually you regenerate um, the blastema and you actually generate a mini limb and this mini limb actually grows to fit the size of the animal. And a classical data and also some very nice new data from uh, Kate McCusker's lab has shown that this is somehow nerve dependent. So somehow the number of nerves, uh, the nerves coming in from a big animal allow the the mini limb to expand to match the size of, of the host. And so there's a lot of work to do. In, 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 uh, and, we're, uh, you know, my group and, and Kate's group are actively looking into those mechanisms. All right, Ellie, I'm, I'm going to just squeeze in one more question because it's from a graduate student, a very talented one, Mike Valdez. And it's similar, maybe a similar type of question. On the note of post-metamorphic animal size, are there limitations of, let's say, mammalian regeneration increasingly being paced on structural differences or molecular differences? So then maybe... Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Um, our um, Our current feeling or whatever idea would be that there are structural differences also in the way, for example, the genome is regulated, how genes are turned off uh, in axolotl versus mammals to kind of limit actually the, in, in mammals, as I say, uh, the limita- there may be limitations in what the cells are able to see, you know, from the outside environment and how they're able to respond in a gene expression way um, in, in terms of this regeneration. That would be our current idea. Uh, of course, whether there are other structural differences, we, we, there could uh, for sure be, and these could all be interlinked, but we're operating on the hypothesis that it's kind of more molecular. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I see there's a couple more questions, but it, we're at the bottom of the hour. So unfortunately, uh, I won't be able to get to these last two questions. So, uh, but I do want to thank Ellie. I mean, obviously, you've generated a lot of interest. So as always, uh, your work is beautiful. 
Um, and, you know, uh, it's too bad you're not here. <laughs> I do remember the last time you were in San Diego. It's always fun to have you uh, around uh, San Diego area. Obviously, you have a lot of close friends still here. So uh, thanks so much again for uh, joining us and giving us such a wonderful talk. So thanks, everyone, for uh, joining in on the talk. Take care, yeah, thank everybody. Thank you very much. Stay Great safe. questions. <laughs>